Welcome to this week's Lawn Sport Podcast. In this podcast, Richard Brand, managing partner and head of the sports group at Errant Fox, speaks to Lawn Sport CEO Sean Cottrell and Lawn Sport editor Chris Bond about his extensive experience working on stadium naming rights deals for sponsors and U.S. teams such as Mercedes-Benz, LA Lakers, Brooklyn Nets, Sacramento Kings, Miami Dolphins, and the San Francisco 49ers. I hope you enjoy the show. So today I'm joined by Richard Brand, a leading US sports lawyer who does extensive amounts of work on the issue of naming rights um, and advises many clients, as you would have heard in the introduction. Uh, Richard, to start off our podcast, I wonder if you could just give a bit more background about your experience, how you became a sports lawyer, because I think it's often something that's overlooked. Um, you know, people see the end product and they don't understand the journey that someone's gone through. So could you just start off by giving us an indication of the the clients you work for and the type of work that you do before we get into the issue of uh, naming rights. I've been doing sports law, and I I do put quotes uh, around sports law because there really, as I'm sure you've heard lots of people say, but it's actually true, there really is no such thing as sports law. Uh, Sports is an industry, Mm. um, and like every other industry, they do lots of things. They do transactions, they do litigation and all. But we do like calling ourselves sports lawyers because I think, first of all, it sounds cooler, and it probably cool. um, gives you, uh, you know, some some advantage over other people who are not quote unquote sports lawyers for getting these deals. But I've been doing sports law since 1995. Um, I have a very broad practice. Um, my focus is uh, literally on anything, anything that is a deal, and related to sports. I do, and that would include naming rights sponsorships, media rights deals. I've done a couple of very large ones, including the Lakers uh, sort of epic uh, deal with Time Warner Cable, acquisitions of sports franchises, uh, arena stadium licenses, uh, concession slash food and beverage agreements, suite and club seat licensing, financing for all different teams and facilities, including league financings. Uh, pretty much anything else you could possibly imagine that relates to sports law, I do. Um, I, I did salary cap work for the Wizards for a long time. I do um, employment agreements for coaches. So it's a pretty broad practice. Um, and, and how did you? How I did also, you get? In, how did you get into that? It's an incredibly funny story because lots of young people ask me, "How do I get into sports law? How did you get into sports law?" And I always give them an answer, and it's always terribly disappointing because it's one of those things that probably cannot be copied. I worked with a very senior partner in my firm on a massive real estate restructuring deal, um, and he's a very well-known partner. His name is David Osnos, and we spent three years working on a real estate deal. And the only thing that, that related to sports there is that when we got tired, we'd sometimes put a basketball game on TV. Um, but... It just so happened that this partner, and I was relatively new in the firm, also happened to have a very close friend and client named Abe Polin, who owned the Washington Wizards and the Washington Capitals. And when we were finished with this uh, real estate transaction, David uh, Osno said, Rich, I'd like you to be my lieutenant. We're building an arena in Washington, Washington, D.C. It's going to be called the MCI Center. So uh, I thought about it for about an eighth of a second as to whether I wanted to do it. Um, I actually didn't take that long, but I wanted to make it a little more dramatic for you all. Um, And 
I started embarking on probably the most exciting project I ever did from soup to nuts, every aspect of an arena, including waiver agreements for the photographers who put their camera in between the glass when they're looking at the ice in a hockey game so that if they get hit, they won't sue us. Um, unbelievably exciting experience. I spent two, three years of my life. I got to know the clients, the team, the owners, and all the other people there. Uh, David is more senior, so he was uh, very good at delegating to me. Uh, so I became a sports lawyer by doing the, the, the uh, arena. Wonderfully uh, lucky for me is at that point, they were doing a lot of other things uh, at the MCI Center. And I ended up understanding, you know, I, I read the collective bargaining agreement. I started doing their player contracts, their salary cap work. When Ted Leonsis bought the Washington Capitals from the Wizards, I did that transaction. When Michael Jordan came to Washington, I did the transaction that brought him there. When he left, I was involved in the unwinding. And in between, I worked for Michael on all sports-related matters. So the Wizards and the Capitals and the MCI Center, that was my big start. And I was really happy to do that. But to be honest, I wanted to have a little bit more breath in what I do. And I was fortunate, very fortunate, and heard the net that they were doing a naming rights agreement. And our firm represented Forest City. And I was able to get an interview with them to talk about doing their naming rights agreement and their suites and their club seats and all that other stuff. Um, and they interviewed me and a number of other people. And for reasons I can't even explain, guys, they gave me the work. Um, and I did the Barclays Center naming rights agreement, which is, was at that time the largest naming rights agreement in the history of naming rights. And as you might imagine, once you get known for doing a big deal, then the other deals start coming. Yeah. Then there was the Time Warner Cable Arena uh, for the Charlotte Bobcats. And I was also team counsel for the Wizards. So I got to know a lot of people and it mushroomed, snowballed, whatever the right word is. And to a point now where um, I would say among the teams that I represent, just to throw off a few, I probably work for, and in all different leagues, the Atlanta Hawks, the Brooklyn Nets, the Charlotte Hornets, the Cleveland Cavaliers, DC United, Inter Milan, Los Angeles Galaxy, Los Angeles Kings, Los Angeles Lakers. I know I'm leaving some out. Memphis Grizzlies, uh, Miami Dolphins. We just did the uh, naming rights deal for that. The Miami Heat, the New York Jets, the Phoenix Suns, Portland Trailblazers, uh, 49ers, and I think I'll stop here. Well, it sounds uh, like it sounds like you're run out of it. it sounds like you're struggling for work. If I'm <laughs> if I'm honest with you. <laughs> Well, but, but I will say this. It is a funny thing. It's a very funny phenomenon about being a sports lawyer. They, you know, sports lawyers are the people that the teams hope they don't have to hire because uh, we're, we're not cheap. And so it, it goes without saying that most of the teams, uh, Brooklyn Nets have been a, an exception because they've given me a tremendous breadth of business for which I'm very grateful. But usually I'm the guy to work on that big deal. You know, uh, when the when the Lakers did the three billion dollar meteorites deal, I did that deal, but I didn't do all the stuff in between. And recently I closed a naming rights deal for their uh, practice facility uh, with UCLA Health. So they hired me for that. But in between, you know, they have very good, strong in-house lawyers and they don't want to do it. So it's a strange phenomenon that I, I can rattle off all these names to you, yet I'm always uh, desperately searching for that next big deal. Um, so and, I think, and, and so it's a, 
That's think, the story of being a sports lawyer, I guess. Yeah, I think I think you you summed that up quite nicely. I think yeah, there's there's a lot of money floating around in sport, but as you said, when they really want to instruct outside counsel, it's normally for those 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 really big deals, and they're not quite as as frequent as you would think. So, can I just 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 before we come on to the the issue, you've mentioned naming rights a few times now. I really want to you know, come on to that because you're such an expert in this field, and I think you know it'd be a waste not to to really delve into that in a bit more detail. But am I right then? You, you were a real estate lawyer before. Is that correct that you were saying you were mainly doing real estate work and then you moved into the corporate commercial? Is that right? And then that's guilty where is, uh, guilt, guilty is charged. Wow, um, I am a real estate lawyer and it's still 50% of my practice. And many people are sort of bewildered, which I always get amused at. In fact, I could probably show you one of my slides that I do when I, when I make presentations on naming rights. Um, People say, how could a real estate lawyer be doing sports lawyer, sports law? And the answer is, I don't know how we can't be because there are such tremendous similarities. And what I have is I have a slide. One slide shows a shopping mall. The other slide shows an arena or stadium. And if you look at that shopping mall, you have various components. You have the name of the mall, which someone pays for. You have a food court, which are clearly the concession agreements in a stadium. You have that anchor tenant instead of Nordstrom's. It's the, you know, it's the Brooklyn Nets and so on and so forth. As you work your way through it, you start realizing it's a very big, complex real estate project. And you have financing. And as you probably know, lenders loan money uh, to sports teams just like they loan money to everybody else, which is basically they want to have security and they have loan documents. So the funny thing is, it's so much closer to real estate law than it is to corporate law, where in all honesty, the only real corporate type stuff is when you're doing a sale or an acquisition of a team or some other major you know, M&A type transaction. But the vast majority of sports stuff is really like real estate. You know, A naming rights agreement is like a license agreement, which is kind of like a lease. So, so yes, I do come from real estate. So, so that, that was, it's really fascinating to hear, and and yeah, it's one of those things that that we say to lawyers all the time who are trying to be sports lawyers is you know what clients want is people who really understand the law first and foremost, and then understand their business. And it seems like you know that's where you've you've, you've been particularly successful at, at understanding both of those and the importance of it. In terms of the naming right deal, when where do you when do they give you a call? When is what what point do you get involved in right from the start or? Um, you know, is there a tendering process? How, how does it work? I, I, I was going to say, sort of, it, it sounds a little snippy. I was going to say it depends on how smart the client is. <laughs> but uh, in, in fairness, it's less how smart the client is. It's more what they need. Uh, for instance, I just worked on a deal with a major team who hadn't done very many naming rights deals. And so what I had suggested, and this was even before I was retained to do the work, I said, let me meet with your marketing people, you know, and I have a list of, you know, 25 or 30 of the most important salient points uh, to be discussed. Um, And I'll sit down with your guys and I'll talk about my experiences. And one thing I will tell you, which has been super useful for me is I have a tremendous amount of deals on both sides of the ledger, both on the team and stadium arena side and on the sponsor side. And that has enabled me to, understand both sides of the issues, understand the compromises, and I hope not be quite as big a jerk as I might normally have been because I know what it's like to be on both sides and I know it's going to come back in my face if I'm not treating an issue in a reasonable manner. 
So I would meet with these marketing people. I'd go over all those issues. And I have to say, it's actually a bit of a marketing thing because the best way to get somebody uh, interested in you is to explain to them that you do more than draft a document and correct things and paginate things and come up with definitions that nobody wants to read. Um, and so, so some deals, that's how I start. Other deals where they're very sophisticated, like I wouldn't presume to sit down with Nets counsel and explain to him what a naming rights deal looks like. Uh, there's no reason to. Yeah. Uh, he could perhaps explain it to me. So it depends on what they want. I do think the smartest people would get their lawyer, even though you know your gut reaction is, I really don't want the bills to start quite yet. Um, if you start your lawyer early and have discussions and have us talk about the, 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 the do's and the don'ts and the things that I've seen come back and, you know, hurt a team or a stadium or hurt a sponsor, I think it's money well spent. You know, I can talk to them about, for instance, don't ever put anything in your, in your, in your pitch material that you're not absolutely positive you'll be able to deliver in your naming rights agreement, because if you do, it will come back at you. Fairly so, because if I were shown a pitch that had some spectacular thing, and then when the agreement came and I said, where is that? And they said, oh, well, that was just sort of an idea. Well, most people would say, well, my idea is to pay you less money. Um, so I, I think it's very, very useful to get people started in early. But I've worked in all different capacities. I just did something for uh, the Miami Dolphins, and they have an extremely experienced inside counsel team. So I was co-counsel to them. Uh, in fact, he took the lead. He did a great job. I filled in anything that he needed. I would work on the consulting parts of the review of documents, but in no way, shape, or form was this my deal, and I would just give them a call when it's done and say it's done. I've worked with other companies who either didn't have in-house counsel or had no one with experience in that area, where I literally led the deal from start to finish and worked with the business people extremely closely to explain to them. So the answer is there's no one size fits all. And I think what's been successful for me is I do believe I've got a certain bit of flexibility, uh, which I think you need in this in this practice. And I also think that uh, I think from an ego perspective, I'm delighted to play whatever role the client wants me to play rather than the role that I think, you know, God had decided I should be playing. And it, and I think it makes a difference. Well, I think that's, that's you know, from a client's perspective, that's exactly what you want, isn't it? You want someone who's going to be uh, malleable and able to adjust to, to um, you know, the needs that they have rather than, you know, trying to deliver something that's not a bespoke service. So that, that completely makes sense. So you mentioned one of the, the, the issues that sort of arises. What's the, you know, could you give us, I don't know, for, for the sake of time, you know, five of the top issues that you see um, that arise time and time again um, in these naming rights deals? Absolutely. Um, and, and let me just start by saying, because a lot of people, uh, you know, I, I teach my students and, you know, they say, what's a naming rights agreement? And everybody's heard of a sponsorship agreement, but many people don't know what a naming rights agreement is. Well, here's the truth. And, and this actually is a pretty good guide for what the big issues are. A naming rights agreement is a sponsorship agreement on steroids. It's really the same type of thing. It's just a little bit more or maybe a lot more. So when you think about that, you find that many of the issues are identical to what that client has already had in a sponsorship agreement. The only real difference, not that it's not a big difference, but the only real difference is that you are giving someone the name of the entire facility. Yet, as you've probably seen in stadiums, arenas, 
even when someone has a sponsorship agreement, you see certain rooms and lounges named uh, for that client, for that sponsor. Well, I guess that's a naming rights agreement also because they're naming the lounge. Um, they're naming, you know, the West Gate. They're naming that. So with that in mind, in terms of the top five issues that, were, you know, that I could think of, uh, first and foremost has to be always, always, always issues of exclusivity. And exclusivity is an incredibly important issue. It's heavily, heavily negotiated. And one of the big problems, uh, or one of the reasons why it's so difficult to negotiate it, is each side is correct in their position, okay? The one who is paying the multiple, multiple millions of dollars wants to make sure that they have a pristine naming rights deal without any worry about clutter or without any worry about competitors. They're paying all that money. They don't want to be embarrassed in their quote-unquote own stadium. Um, so they are going to be looking for that. The team in the arena, however, they've got a business to run. If Taylor Swift comes into town and she's sponsored by a competitor, do you really want to tell your CEO, well, it would have been nice to have Taylor Swift perform, but unfortunately she's being sponsored, title sponsored by a competitor of our naming rights uh, partner. So she can just have, she's just going to have to perform somewhere else. Or you can go tell Taylor Swift to drop her sponsor for our concert. Okay. I don't think I have to tell you that's not going to be a very fruitful conversation. Um, so it's extremely, um, by the way, I don't want to get characterized as a Taylor Swift fan. That was an example, <laughs> not, not an endorsement. Um, You've been outed but, uh, now. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's right. Uh, can we, can we reverse the tape? Um, I'll come up with someone else. How about the Grateful Dead? Um, but in any event, in any event, the whole thing about exclusivity is each side is working very hard. Uh, the, the team and the stadium, and they, and they always do work in good faith in a naming rights agreement. Because, to be honest, even if they were not good faith people, this is going to be their partner for 20 years, and nobody wants to start a relationship in a fight. Also, I think most people tend to be good people anyway, so I think even without that incentive, they'd be good. But, the, but from the team's perspective... They really want to get you what you can, what they can give you as a sponsor, but they need flexibility. If the Olympics come, they're going to have to take down all the signs, including possibly the front sign. If the NBA All-Star Game comes, they're going to clean up, they're going to cover all of the sponsorship signage. All of these are things that have to be worked in, into the agreement. An argument could be made that it helps the naming rights partner, because even if their signs are down, when you turn on the TV and you hear that the NBA All-Star Game is going to be played at Mercedes-Benz Stadium or, or Hard Rock Stadium or Barclays Center, that's pretty terrific publicity. But nevertheless, people are sitting there saying, I don't want to be in that situation. What happens if the NBA has a competitor to me? I don't want to have that. So that's the negotiation. It's a lot of tugging and, and pulling back and forth. You all, we always get there. Uh, but it is probably the largest negotiated thing I have. Um, another area that is actually often negotiated to, to, to a very large degree, and some would say it probably isn't as necessary as it, it should, doesn't need to be, are name changes. And a name change, again, the, the exciting thing about naming rights deals are all of these issues, there really is a lot of merit on both sides of the table. So you're not just you know, coming up with an obvious point. Name, start with a name change. If you're the sponsor and you're paying, you know, 
$400 million, don't you think you should be able to change the name when you want to change the name? I mean, it kind of seems fair. Mm, yeah. However, if you're the business person at the stadium, do you want to have this year's stadium name is this, that year's stadium? Is, I mean, you have to build a brand. Yeah, completely. And the way to build a brand is with consistency. So you don't want the name changed willy nilly anytime that they decide they want to change it. So it's negotiated. Certain things like, you know, how about if you're acquired, if the sponsor's acquired by a mer in a merger and acquisition, could they change the name? Yeah, typically they could, and that seems like a fair point. But what happens if they change the name to a name of somebody who's a major competitor of one of your other sponsors or something like that? So it's a significant issue that's negotiated. A lot of people say it's over-negotiated because you rarely have a big argument about it. But believe me, uh, if you are the team in the stadium and you're in the middle of that situation or the sponsor and you can't do what you need to do, you'll wish you spent a little bit more time negotiating it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and are you seeing, are you seeing uh, uh, that, the, the, say, say, for example, in the NBA or the NFL, is there an, um, does it add an increasing complexity with the, you know, how that's divided up with the sort of league sponsors? And because, you know, famously, you know, the NFL in particular, you know, carve out rights for pretty much, the, you know, most, most categories of, of any of anything that could be sponsored is pretty much sponsored. And no, no doubt when you're dealing with that large number of different sponsors and, and different agreements, that that must be quite tricky to navigate. Um, yes, it is. And, and, and the leagues are a very interesting situation because in some ways it's the easiest part of the negotiations and in other ways it's also the most difficult. What's the easy part? Um, uh, you can write this down. The league wins. OK, <laughs> that's the easy part. Um, and, and, and in fact, you could probably just put that in the naming rights agreement. You have a section called the league wins. And, and if you think about it, it has to have that. So what you'll have is a provision in every agreement, a subservience provision that says that this agreement is subject to league rules. Why? Because how else could you operate? You're just a team. When the league changes the rules and it conflicts with your naming rights agreement, you're between a rock and a hard place. You can't tell the league, no. You can't tell the sponsor no, so you so somebody has to win. And to go back to my first point, the league wins. So that's easy. But if you're a sponsor and you're paying four hundred million dollars, you say, well, wait a second. So if the league comes in and they says that you're no longer to advertise financial services, and I just happen to be a financial service company, then I continue to pay you four hundred million dollars, even though sadly we don't get to advertise my company. That doesn't make any sense. So what you find people are negotiating is not whether the league wins or loses, but what what do you do to give some type of make good or compensation or, or something to the sponsor? And that's a negotiated point. As you might imagine, every single little thing that comes up doesn't need to be negotiated. But if there's something major and you're and you are a um, sponsor or a naming rights partner, you need to have some flexibility. Similar to media rights agreements, when I do those, they have a change circumstance provision, which says that if circumstances change because of league rules or national legislation or laws, we have to be able to have some type of adjustment because it's not fair. The, the No pun intended, the playing field has been moved mm -hmm. and we need to get it adjusted. So uh, it's in, and that's always an interesting negotiation. And the other interesting part about league rules is whenever you have an agreement, the definition of league rules which is sort of funny, whether you're a lawyer or not a lawyer, it, it has to sort of tickle you a little bit because the definition of league rules or whatever the rules are today 
and whatever they are tomorrow. So you could just imagine uh, working on a deal where someone says this is subject to the rules that don't exist yet. Uh, it's a little bit awkward and uncomfortable. But again, it has to be the case because when the NFL is setting their rules or the NBA is setting their rules, they don't sit there and say, well, what does such and such team think about this? We don't want to do anything to hurt them. So it has to be that way. So again, it's heavily negotiated as long as you understand the premise that the league isn't going to be the loser in that. It's a question of the other two parties trying to figure out how to compensate for any big changes. And so are you seeing then, um, you know, given the, just the vast number of deals that you've done um, and the experience you've gained over the years doing that, are you seeing that these the people were just being a bit more smart about it. So I should imagine in the earlier days, people were a little bit more difficult um, because they didn't necessarily understand the potential outcomes of, of not negotiating these properly um, or thoroughly. Uh, are, we, are you seeing that, that still as education has improved and as things have moved on that um, people understand that they have to work more closely together or is it, again, another client-by-client um, issue? Or you know, does it differ from well, client-by-client? You asked me a question with an or, which means there's two choices. So it almost <laughs> seems uncomfortable. But, so, but it almost seems uncomfortable to tell you that the answer to your question is yes. Um, uh, the, the, the fact is, I do see some people understanding it. But here's, here's where I talked earlier about sports lawyers, you know, just being, you know, people who work in the sports industry. This is where people who are experienced in the area make sense for everybody, for the clients, for the, for the lawyers because it is a specialized thing. And I would rather work with a very knowledgeable, intelligent, difficult lawyer than someone who is unbelievable amiable, but has no real experience in the area, because I don't really want to explain to them about league rules and this and that and all that. I, I, it, it's better for everybody if people understand the way the deal works. So ideally, it would work that way. But to answer your question, is it working that way? It kind of depends on, frankly, who the lawyer is on the other side, who's giving them the advice, because some of these things just are not intuitive. I mean, if I would have talked to you about it separate and apart from sports and said, does it make sense to say that your deal is going to be subject to rules that don't exist? You would easily say, of course not. Yeah. How yeah. stupid do you think I am? <laughs> um, but the truth is, that is the way it works. So, so I found it up and down, uh, you know, some more, more knowledgeable, some others. You almost always get there. And, and, and in a deal like the league rules deal that I'm talking about, the good news is you really don't have a choice. Everybody likes to say that this is a, you know, this is a hard line I'm drawing and it's a take it or leave it. But in this case, it really is a take it or leave it. And so it's up to the parties to get to the point where they can make each other comfortable. And I've never, ever lost the sponsorship or a naming rights deal based on this subservience clause. And I don't think I ever will because someone along the road is going to say, hey, this is just the way it is. This is what you need to do. Uh, but to your question about people getting smarter, I do think people are getting much more smarter in the way in which they do a deal and the way that they, uh, uh, so-called, the, the word that they use is activate a deal. People now are understanding how important it is that the money as a, that the sponsor pays is impactful on their business and on their clients. Uh, good example is I did the Golden One Center. I represented Golden One Credit Union. And instead of worrying so much about whether they get, you know, 
dinner with a celebrity or fabulous seats down low or all the other things that, you know, management might like to play with. They were so focused on, you know, any credit union member automatically got a discount on tickets. They have a fast pass lane in the arena. These are the things because you can imagine if you're a cre- if, if you're living in Sacramento and you hear that all I have to do is join the credit union and I get an automatic discount or I get to buy my hot dogs quicker, you'd say, well, I got to put my money somewhere. Yeah, Why yeah. don't I put it in the credit union? It, it, and it's brilliant. And I see more and more people focusing on that rather than focusing on all the gimmies and all the other stuff. And, and, and I think it's smart and I will give credit to, I give credit to the sponsors for doing that, but I give just as much credit to the teams and the stadiums who recognize how important it is. Um, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the, you know, back in the days when we had the, the, the terrible recession and all the banks were failing, yeah. but you may remember um, we had city field. And some legislator said something about they tried to propose a bill to change the name of City Field. Do you remember what that name was? No, I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't think you would. It was just one of those. <laughs> um, so, taxpayers Field. They wanted to. Now, of course, nobody was ever going to name it Taxpayers <laughs> Field, but it gave you a sense of what people thought about naming rights agreements. And to some extent, the teams and the stadiums and the sponsors are all guilty for creating the panic and the uproar about all these ridiculous payments. Because here's the interesting thing. A naming rights agreement that's $400 million, it's probably 20 years. And that's $20 million a year. If I told you that some major, major corporation, whether it's Barclays Bank or Mercedes, was spending $20 million a year on promotion, you wouldn't be all that amazed. It wouldn't be yeah. that impressive. I can't you know, think about what their overall budget must be. Yeah. But if I told you they're spending $400 million, your eyes would pop and you'd say, this is ridiculous. So a lot of it depends on how you sell it. A naming rights agreement has an annual payment, and they do aggregate the number, but it's just good, smart advertising, good, smart promotion. And you know, do you think Barclays pays more than $20 million a year in advertising? I'm pretty sure they do. Yeah, I think you see this in sport across the board. You know, when they, you look at player contracts um, and their salaries or agents' fees and you yeah. know, a whole bunch of different areas, they always use the aggregate number because um, it's much more impressive than the reality. And they add in all, every single bonus you could possibly imagine um, to sort of get that up and, and gross, obviously, gross the number up. One of the things I wanted to touch on there. I, cer- I certainly use it. I certainly use it in my bio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite rightly, quite rightly. That's 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 where you can use it that way, but. Um, the um that's smart marketing right but no the um one of the things i did want to uh, touch brand on, marketing right, right, exactly. i think i call it brand marketing. <laughs> um one of the things i wanted to touch on um i know you've written about this for the association of corporate council um in the past and you know i know you go, you go around and, and lecture at various places such as stanford and so forth on this issue so um you know one of the things that that we've seen um particularly in the london 2012 games over here that got uh, a lot of attention was ambush marketing and it um continues to be something that people like to discuss how much of an of an issue is that f- for you in the states um you know does you know particularly with naming rights deals is that is that a real issue or is it something that now is um diminishing and people aren't you know getting as much value from tr- from trying to do it a- excellent question it, it, it's always going to be an issue but it's never a big issue in a naming rights agreement. 
for the following reason. First of all, most people recognize that to some extent, there's a limited amount of things that you can do to prevent ambush marketing. If you're the Olympics, you can pass a law. Um, if you're a professional sports team, you don't get to do that. So for the, to a large extent, you can't really control that uh, 100%. So what you can agree to do, and which is typical in an agreement, is you agree to use some standard of efforts to try and prevent that if you see a problem to address it. You can't guarantee ambush marketing will not happen, hmm. but you can guarantee that you're not going to be the cause of it. You're not going to pay a competitor money to come into your arena and wear T-shirts with the competitor's name. But if that competitor is four blocks away and you don't own the property, that competitor can stand there and do whatever they want to do. But you won't let them set up a stand in front of your arena. So it, 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 is, it still is a big problem. People try and do that. They do that with commercials, as you've seen for even some of the Olympics commercials, where people have tried to do that. But I think there's a recognition by most people that, number one, the teams in the stadiums aren't interested in perpetuating that anyway, because if they had a reputation for allowing ambush marketing, forget about your naming rights partner it would reduce their ability to sell the sponsors. Nobody wants to be part of an organization that doesn't protect their people, That's including their partners. Yeah. So it's not really a huge issue. It's a huge issue, but it's not a huge issue in the, in the negotiation situation. And people usually work in good faith to prevent it. And look, it can't always be prevented, but it can at least be mollified a little bit. It can be uh, reduced to you know, the, the, the lowest possible uh, amount. And, and given the, um, well, there's two things I wanted to touch on uh, before we end, which is, you know, is there a, you, you pretty much, I think you answered this at the beginning really though, but when you're dealing with sort of NCAA um, sort of sponsorship deals or uh, NFL or NBA sponsorship deals, is there any difference between the sort of college arrangements or, you know, the structures of the college that make it s subtly different? Um, or is it, is it like for like? Um Great question. It's very different, and it's also the same. Um, what's the same? It's an agreement to get money and to give someone the right to for promotion and for endorsements. That's what it is. And I did the Albertson Stadium agreement. I represented Albertson, and that was for Boise State. You know the blue field yep. that you see on TV? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I did that agreement, and I actually spoke with someone at Berkeley because Berkeley had a Kabam field signage agreement. So in some ways, it's the same as any other agreement. However, universities, not just the NCAA, but the universities have different things that they have to worry about, not just money. And I don't mean to suggest that the only thing teams and arenas care about are, is money, because a lot of teams do care about brand and reputation. And that's why, you know, Levi Stadium, the 49ers did a deal with Levi's because they were two highly respected organizations in the area. That's why UCLA Health did a deal with the L.A. Lakers, because they're two of the prominent brands in the area. UCLA Health is one of the best health systems and the Lakers are the, the, one of the top teams, so you put them together, and it's a terrific branding and a highly ethical, well-known, well-recognized thing. But nevertheless, there still is a little bit more profit motive there, whereas, for instance, you know, uh, California, uh, you, Cal Berkeley, where I, I teach a course there, they have a Kabam field signage agreement, but it's the Kabam field signage agreement at Memorial Field. Why? because it was named Memorial Field in recognition of all those veterans who have you know, given their lives, and they just didn't feel comfortable getting rid of that name Memorial Field 
simply to make some money. So there had to be, you know, a negotiation with that. You also have boards of trustees and you have lots of other things, perhaps names of certain brands you might not want to have. So I do think there are some differences. But in the end, uh, so many teams and stadiums have very high ethical standards as well. So the more ethical they are, the closer they are to the college thing. I suppose there could also be some colleges who say, I don't really care, I want the money, although I haven't actually seen that yet. So it is different in that regard. There's a bit more bureaucracy. As you might imagine, the structure of a university, particularly if it's a state university, is a little bit more complex and a tiny bit more bureaucratic than when you have one guy owning 75% of the team. Uh, It's a little bit more difficult to navigate your way through. So the end result is very similar, but the process, I think, is a little bit more elongated. And what would you say are the sort of growing trends? Are there any growing trends that you're seeing? Um, you know, since you've been doing this for such a long time now, are you seeing anything, you know, that is really, you know, is it just more of the same or is there something that's starting to, to, to change shape? Well, I think naming rights are not only here to stay, but they are expanding tremendously, not just in terms of the dollars, and maybe not even in terms of the dollars, but more and more people are recognizing this is a great way to make money and to, and, to, and to do projects. I remember I read an article about a year ago, some woman had put her child's name up for naming rights. Uh, she offered it in some uh, online thing that she would sell the naming rights to her child. By the way, she didn't do very well, and I think she <laughs> withdrew it. Um, yeah. But but I, I use that as an example to show that everybody thinks that that's an answer to come up with funds. I'm working on a major project now, completely non-sports, actually two different projects, uh, completely non-sports, but major uh, facilities. One is a tourist attraction. One is just this major major municipal facility, facility. And in each one of those cases, they're selling naming rights because people realize this is a wonderful way to be able to monetize something um, that you otherwise would not have been able to monetize. It can help you with the construction. It could help you with the organization, the operation, the maintenance, and all these things. So you do see a broad expansion of the concept of naming rights. That's one trend. The second trend, which I touched on a few moments ago, is you see a trend towards trying to make sure that that naming rights agreement is going to be most useful to activate exactly what the client needs to make sure that that sponsor or naming rights partner is able to get some huge benefit. For instance, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, people say, why did Mercedes-Benz do the Atlanta Falcon Stadium? Well, here's a good idea. Number one, right about the time I did the deal, Mercedes-Benz was moving their their entire corporate headquarters from New Jersey to Atlanta. What better splash than when you're moving to Atlanta to come up with a name? Why would the Falcons use it? Because I think the Falcons were very interested in getting a top, top recognition and uh, perception of their stadium. How much better can you do when you think in terms of the names of the sponsors to get Mercedes-Benz on your stadium? So I think there's a recognition more and more of, uh, of both sides that they need this to be impactful. It's not just throw $400 million at something and hope that it does good. It's sitting there working with a good marketing team and trying to figure out how can I make this 
a win-win. Win for you guys because you're getting all that money. Win for you guys because this is going to increase your client base, increase your earnings, increase your name recognition. It, and if you think about it, it's a lot less risky than just a Super Bowl commercial. Um, it, yeah. may, it, it, it lives forever. Um, or at least for 15 or 20 years, depending on the agreement. And so I think those are the two trends I see more than anything. Um, as far as dollars, they go up and down, I think, with the economy. I think they're on the way up now, but I'm sure in my lifetime they'll be on the way down again. Well, I think the yeah, yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure you're, you're correct in that assessment. We're, we're definitely seeing trends um, internationally as well, that this is something that's, that's, that's definitely not going away. Um, and, and people obviously, you know, particularly outside of the US, look to the US as a as a lead on this. So um, thank you so much. It's been fantastic speaking with you and um, having someone with such experience and knowledge in this area to, to you know, share some, some little gems for us. Um, I'm sure our readers and members and listeners will be fascinated to, to, to listen to this. So thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Well, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Uh, have a great day. Sadly, that's all we have time for for this show. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, for all your latest sports law updates and information, you can go to lawandsport.com or follow us on Twitter at Law and Sport. Go to our YouTube channel, follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also go to our website to sign up for our weekly email. Thanks again for tuning in.